There are currently more than 150 COVID-19 vaccines in development. Billions of dollars are being pumped into research in the hope that a viable drug can reach the market in record time and ease the effects of the pandemic on individuals, societies, and the global economy. While labs around the world are working as fast as they can, we're still a long way from a cure. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram, and today we look at the challenges in the race to find a coronavirus vaccine. Of the many vaccines that are in trials, there are multiple methods scientists are using to elicit the ultimate goals, an effective immune response and long-term safety. Vaccines work by pushing a body to mount an immune response by producing virus-fighting antibodies. In this process, our body builds a memory of that virus that enables us to fight it in the future. But vaccines come in different shapes and forms. We spoke to Dr. Jeremy Rossman, a virologist and an honorary senior lecturer at the University of Kent. He explains the different types of vaccine methods that scientists are using for COVID-19. So we have vaccines that are based on the virus. They just kill the virus so that it can no longer replicate in your body. And then that is what we call a killed inactivated vaccine. This is perhaps the simplest type of vaccine and one of the types of vaccines that's been used for many, many years. So we have multiple of these killed inactivated vaccines. And actually one of them or, or a couple different variants of this is already being used in China right now, despite not finishing phase three clinical trials. We also have a lot of different vaccines that they've taken a gene from the coronavirus and put it into another virus, a safe virus that doesn't really cause any sort of disease in people, but the vaccine can be given to people using this other virus. And this is a viral vector vaccine. And using a different virus makes it really effective for this virus to then go express the proteins for the coronavirus in your own cells. And this allows for a very effective immune response, typically a very safe vaccine. And so these are what we call the adenovirus, viral vectored vaccines. And we have a lot of these. One is already being used by Russia. One is already being used by China. And we have several others in phase three clinical trials, including what is one of the leading contenders for the sort of first licensed vaccine is the Oxford vaccine, which is also an adenovirus-based vaccine. We also have mRNA vaccines. These are when we take just the gene of one of the coronavirus proteins, we make a little sort of tool that allows for your own cells to make a protein. It's very similar to what happens with the adenovirus, except here we're sort of skipping that other virus. We're just basically giving the gene so that your own cells make this coronavirus protein. Now, we've had a lot of these coming into clinical trials, but we've never had a licensed human mRNA-based vaccine before. So we don't really know how effective, how safe these vaccines are going to be, but the preliminary evidence so far looks very promising. We also have different 
but very similar DNA-based vaccines. We have vaccines that are based on just a single protein of the coronavirus where they've taken that protein and they've purified it and then you give that protein directly. So there are a huge range of different vaccine technologies, but they're all designed to allow your immune system to react to a coronavirus protein so that if then you get infected, your body is sort of primed and can then respond faster and hopefully protect you from either infection or severe disease. The world has never seen a rush to develop a drug like this. A vaccine usually takes over 10 years and hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. But with billions of dollars being thrust into research, the expectations for a miracle coronavirus vaccine are high. In September, President Donald Trump raised those expectations. This could have taken two or three years, and instead it's going to be <laughs> going to be done in a very short period of time. Could even have it during the month of October. The United States alone has invested over $10 billion in Operation Warp Speed, the goal of which is to have 300 million doses of a safe and effective coronavirus vaccine ready by January 2021. But Russia made a startling announcement on the 11th of August, claiming it had approved the world's first coronavirus vaccine. After the initial concerns that Russia was making claims of success, even before taking the vaccine into phase three trial, Russian officials announced that they were starting advanced trials among 40,000 volunteers. The first results of this important phase three trial are due to be published by the end of October. But let's pause here for a moment. What are these phase three clinical trials? It's a term that's often used in the reporting on vaccine development. Here is Dr. Jeremy Rossman again. We have about 11 vaccines worldwide that are in stage three clinical trials. And these are the very large clinical trials designed to see whether or not a vaccine is actually really effective at preventing infection and preventing severe disease. And in a large population of people to ensure that the vaccine is safe. So multiple vaccines in that phase three clinical trial. However, those trials typically last several years. And most of these trials have only started in the summer around June or even as late as September. And so we're looking to say, how quickly can we get enough data that we know that the vaccine works and is safe versus how long does this process actually take? So to put that into context, there is an initial research and a preclinical phase where the vaccine is tested in labs, not using humans. Then a promising potential vaccine goes to phase one, where up to 100 volunteers are given the vaccine to see the effect on people and ensure it's safe. Then comes phase two. Here, several hundred volunteers are given the vaccine, ensuring a larger sample size. These phases seem to have happened very quickly in the race to find a COVID-19 shot. Dr. Jeremy Rossman explains why. For the earlier clinical trials, the phase one and phase two clinical trials, these seem to progress really quickly. And the reason for that is that it's a very simple thing that we're looking for. So when you give the vaccine to somebody, you look and make sure that, in fact, they now have an immune response 
to the vaccine, because this is what you want a vaccine to do is to boost your immune response so that then if you ever get exposed to the virus, you're protected. And that's really easy to test because you just look at the blood a little bit of time after the participants have been given the vaccine and you can look for amount of antibodies, you can look for active T cells and things like that that are good markers of the vaccine potentially working. So that's great. And that's very easy to do. Finally, we get to phase three. This involves large scale trials on thousands of volunteers over time. These last a lot longer. And the reason for this is that there are two very important things that we need to look at. We need to look at, first of all, does the vaccine actually protect against infection or severe disease? And the only way that we can really test this without actually giving somebody the coronavirus intentionally is to give them a vaccine and then wait. And over a span of time, a certain percentage of the people that had the vaccine will end up being exposed to the virus. And then you look and say, the people that were given the vaccine versus the placebo, was there a difference in their likelihood of coming down with coronavirus disease or severe disease? So that's the first thing. And that can take a long time because you're just waiting to see for people being exposed to the virus. So if this clinical trial is going on somewhere where there's a really high level of virus transmission, this might be only a couple months to get that data. But if you're having active containment of the virus, then this could take many months or years. And the second thing that you wanna see is you wanna see what happens over time. You wanna see, does the immune response last? over time, you know, is the vaccine only good for two months and then the immune response fades, but also is the vaccine safe over time? So do you have any side effects that show up, say, months down the line? For comparison, vaccines from Oxford AstraZeneca in the UK and Moderna in the United States are in phase three testing on 30,000 volunteers each. 10,000 volunteers have been selected for the Novavax vaccine, a trial in the UK run by the US biotech firm. So if one of the big pharma companies succeeds in finding a vaccine, what happens next? When a drug maker makes a vaccine, the first step is to file a patent. This gives them, in effect, a copyright of the drug and protects their intellectual property. Essentially, this lets companies protect the investments they have made to create the drugs, and no one else can just copy and distribute their own version. It means the company can then sell or license the drug around the world and the revenue pays the millions it costs to develop, plus their profit. But of course, with demands so high in every single country, whoever gets the first effective and safe vaccine to the market could charge pretty much any price they like and still have buyers. To get a perspective on what's at stake, let's look at these numbers. According to Bernstein Research, a finance firm based in New York, COVID-19 vaccines now in the testing phase will bring in pre-order sales of over $21 billion dollars to six companies in 2021 alone. Pfizer would make the most in the pack, with more than $6 billion, followed by Sanofi SA Partnership with GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Novavax Incorporation. No one doubts that the pharma companies have the right to make money on the drugs they develop using the expensive labs, trained scientists, and corporate experience. But 
The concern is that wealthy countries will just outbid poorer countries when supplies are initially still limited. A vaccine for the haves and nothing for the have-nots. That's why a number of low-income countries like Pakistan, Somalia, South Africa, for example, backed by the United Nations, are pushing to limit patent protections for COVID-19 vaccine. Their logic is simple. Rather than let one drug maker hold a monopoly for producing or licensing a single effective vaccine, why not allow any drug company in the world copy their design and distribute it fast and everywhere? To help with this, the World Health Organization in May formed a patent pool so that it's easier for vaccine researchers to replicate each other's work. As of July, many countries had joined the pool, but no drug makers, nor the United States, had signed up. Philanthropists like Bill Gates are also worried the first vaccine will go to the highest bidder. The world's low and lower-middle-income countries are home to nearly half of the global population. Because they don't have the purchasing power of the wealthy countries, they risk not getting nearly enough doses. Unless we do better, they'll only be able to cover 14% of their people with a COVID-19 vaccine. In May, the European Union launched an $8 billion initiative with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust that plans to finance access to a rapid deployment of new COVID-19-related health technologies. The US, Russia and India refuse to participate. The key logic to a globally available vaccine isn't just about equality. Rich countries won't be safe if they are the only ones with the vaccine. Although global travel has diminished greatly, it won't always be that way. Opening doors at some point will mean the virus will still travel unless everyone gets inoculated. For example, New Zealand declared itself coronavirus-free in early June after two weeks of no new cases. But they kept restrictions for those coming into the country. Then, in August, after 102 days being virus-free, a family of four who returned from overseas tested positive. These four infected many more. What is now known as Auckland August Cluster eventually had 179 infections. In an interconnected world, it is time to recognize a simple truth. Solidarity is self-interest. If we fail to grasp that fact, everyone loses. That was UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. In September, he warned about the rise of vaccine nationalism and urged world leaders not to try and work alone. The World Health Organization, too, has been warning richer countries to think globally, not just for themselves. To stop the pandemic quickly and effectively, the world needs to resist what we call vaccine nationalism. It's natural that governments want to protect their own citizens first. But once a vaccine is approved, production will be limited initially and we must decide who to prioritize. Vaccinating older people, those with underlying conditions and essential workers in all countries is the best way to suppress transmission everywhere, restore confidence and accelerate the global economic recovery. And that's why we're saying we need to vaccinate some in all countries rather than all people in some countries. If people in lower income countries miss out on vaccines, the virus will continue to kill and the recovery will be delayed. So sharing and solidarity is in the interest of each and every nation on earth. The World Health Organization has also set up COVAX to raise funds to collectively buy the vaccine for developing countries. 
an ambitious global initiative to secure 2 billion doses of a potential coronavirus vaccine by the end of 2021. The $2 billion in funding needed by the end of the year was in early October, still $300 million short. By the 18th of September 2020, the World Health Organization's deadline for countries to commit to joining COVAX, 172 countries had become part of the initiative. But still, some of the world's biggest players abstained, including the United States, China and Russia. Here is the UN chief Antonio Guterres again. It is in every country's national and economic self-interest to work together to massively expand access to tests and treatments and to support a vaccine as a global public good, a people's vaccine, available and affordable for everyone, everywhere. There's a lot of hope riding on these vaccines to rid the world of this pandemic. But not everything will get back to normal as soon as we have a vaccine. A new report from researchers brought together by the UK's Royal Society said we need to be realistic about what a vaccine could achieve and when. The report asked some questions about the rollout of the vaccines to the wider world, in some cases to places that may not even have a concrete road. There are questions about glass vials that carry vaccines and refrigerator capacity, with some vaccines needing storage at minus 80 degrees Celsius. How do you make sure to keep the vaccine so cold while carrying it to the arid heat or in low-income countries where power might be intermittent? Here is Dr. Jeremy Rossman. We don't know when we are going to get it. It could be in March. It could be in March of 2022. We just don't know at this point in time. So we can't rely on something that we don't know is going to work right now. That's the first important point. Second point is even if we do have a vaccine that we know is going to work, it is going to take many months to years to vaccinate enough of a population that the population would no longer have to worry about coronavirus infection. That would take a really long time. And thirdly, you have to think about this in the context of the entire world. Because even if you have one country that vaccinates the entire population, which would never happen, but even if you did vaccinate the entire population, well, how long does that vaccine protect? It could be a couple months, it could be a couple of years. You are in the context of there's going to be cases coming in from other countries constantly until we are able to vaccinate enough of the world's population that we could actually eradicate coronavirus if we even can. So this is going to require constant precautions. Hopefully at varying levels, it might be fairly mild precautions and it's probably going to be phased out if we get a vaccine and as more of the population is immunized. But definitely for the near future, we are still going to need precautions. The vaccine is not a magic bullet that is going to instantaneously alleviate the need for precautions, nor do we need to wait for a vaccine to be taking preventative actions that protect health and lives. A vaccine needs to be both effective and widely taken. But the history of vaccines suggests, even in cases where vaccines have been found, eradication can take decades. The first polio vaccines were discovered almost 70 years ago, but the disease has still not been eradicated. But COVID-19 is not polio. Maybe universal vaccination is not what we're looking for. In October, the head of Britain's vaccine task force, Kate Bingham, said vaccinating everybody against COVID-19 was not going to happen, with the inoculation 
reserved for high-risk groups. With the speed of development, she said giving the vaccine to healthy people could potentially cause, I quote, some freak harm. And statements like this can cause people to be wary. Even if a safe and effective vaccine is available by some time in 2021 and offered to the general public, there will be questions about people's willingness to take it. Anti-vaccine sentiment, known as anti-vax movement, has been gaining momentum for years now. A survey by Ipsos, a multinational market research company, revealed that a quarter of those questions said they were unwilling to take the COVID-19 vaccine. The main reason was a fear of potential side effects, a lack of belief in a potential vaccine's efficacy, and a belief that COVID-19 isn't that serious an illness. Dr. Jeremy Rossman says the scientific community needs to tackle these views by assuring people the vaccine is safe and effective. We need to be really careful about how we talk about it. We need to be really transparent with the data and really show very clearly that, in fact, this is a safe vaccine and this is an effective vaccine. And part of that is making sure that we don't license a vaccine until we know that, in fact, it is safe and effective. Because if we release a vaccine, but a large portion of the population is hesitant and isn't taking the vaccine, then that means the virus could continue to circulate in the population. And this is going to cause a lot of problems. And this is going to cause increased health issues with people, whether that's simply mild coronavirus cases, whether this is the protracted long COVID, or whether it's severe COVID cases in you know elderly or people with underlying health conditions. So if the challenge of finding a vaccine that everyone will take prove insurmountable, where does that leave us? Are we going to rely in the end on herd immunity, the effect of enough people in society catching the virus, recovering, and then preventing the passage of COVID-19 through society, even to people who have not yet had the illness? Daniel Bardsley is a freelance journalist who writes about the coronavirus for The National. He warns that herd immunity is no cure. About 10% of the world's population has been infected with the new coronavirus. So I think it's still a long way to go before the world would reach a point at which infection levels or infection rates have been so high that it would confer or it would significantly prevent the continued transmission of the virus because so many people are immune. Then there are the unknowns about the virus. How long does immunity last? Can you catch it twice? And what happens if you do? It remains an open question as to how long immunity will last after infection. I think a vaccine is still not being available as early on as I think people had hoped initially. I think that's why there is this continued talk about herd immunity that I think it's still a very long way to go before that will be a, a significant factor in terms of preventing transmission of the virus. So what will the world look like in the coming years? If a vaccine is not found, Dr. Jeremy Rossman thinks it's inevitable that we adapt. I think we are absolutely going to see changes in society that will stick around even for the, the foreseeable future. I mean, things as simple as working from home, you know, I think that's going to be a lot more prevalent. But yeah, I think there is going to be this sort of slightly modified interactions of people that may actually facilitate reduced transmission of respiratory and potentially other viruses. I think that because this is going to be necessary 
for the coming months to year or more, I think that will probably persist to some level. I think it will fade as the risk of coronavirus decreases, but I think it will stick around for for a while for the foreseeable future, yes. As the world rushes to find a solution to this pandemic, political wrangling and human behavior may disrupt its full potential. But even with promising reports, the outcomes are uncertain with maybe years of trials ahead to ensure safety and efficacy. In the meantime, it's the most vulnerable that need protection. People and countries will still have to adapt and accommodate in a world with or without a vaccine. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I have been your host, Sohail Akram. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks this week to Dr. Jeremy Rossman and Daniel Barsley. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.